We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. Hey everybody, what's up? I am Cameron. And I'm Willie. And I am not. And you definitely are not. No, look at you. Tell by your mustache. How are you, my friend? Good, man. Dude, that mustache is... I feel like it... Gotta go. No, I'm I'm actually really used to it now. (laughs) I I wanna name it though, because I feel like it's its own thing. Yeah. So we should like name it Glenn. (laughs) Quagmire. (laughs) No, like it can't have a name of something else. It has to have its own name. Okay. Like Glenn. Glenn. And this is Glenn. Yes. Our special guest. (laughs) And this is our special guest, Glenn. (laughs) AKA Willie's mustache. It's good to see you, man. Yeah. Good to be here. It's really good to be here. This Glad does to... does my heart good to be in here. Yeah. Talk about this stuff. Remember where we came from and think about where we're going. Where yeah, we're it's been uh, it's been a good time for that. We just uh, just celebrated New Year's, and uh, and I think that it is a great time to sort of reflect on uh, where we've come from, mm-hmm. where we've been, and we're gonna do that today uh, by talking about the rehab experience. Yeah. Um, this is fun. a topic that we got from our war story this week. They came to us from Courtney. Um, awesome. Great story. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. And she talks in her story about uh, about what rehab was like for her. And so we thought it might be fun to dive into the rehab experience and, and what it was like for us and kind of what we were expecting. Yeah, what you, and, might, ex- what, what you might experience if you go. Yeah, and, you know, like, some of the things that they had us do, some of the work <laughs> yeah. that we had to do in there. Yeah. Because she talks about it in her story. She says, rehab is no joke. Yeah. I mean, you know, and on, on that note, let's just, let's just get right into it here. Like when, when she says rehab is no joke, what it makes me think is that she went to rehab with sort of one idea of what it was going to yeah. be. And then she get it, she got in there and, and, and she realized pretty mm-hmm. quickly that it was going to be, um, extensive yeah for you what was what was that experience like what what were you expecting well, sort of going into it and then what was uh what was sort of the the realization <laughs> that you had maybe so upon? my my full intention when i got into rehab was to leave my addiction at the door and pick it up on my way out right like like i had been in and out of trouble enough times i'd I'd well, had let's, enough let's, counseling Let me ask you before stuff. you get too far into it. What what made you go to rehab? Were you forced to go to rehab? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it was either I, rehab or prison. Because that makes a difference, right? Yeah. Like you're you're fully willing to leave your addiction at the door and pick it up on your way out when you have to go. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, my first day in in, in rehab was led up by, uh, you know, my first week before rehab or my first month really like I was on probation for conspiracy to deliver methamphetamine. I had a, I had a five year sentence over my head. They had released me out on, uh, uh, aftercare, like outpatient treatment. Mm. Right. So I was going to these outpatient treatment classes and stuff like that, but I was still using. And then I stopped going to that and just started using. Well, about a week before I ended up going, 
my probation officer went over to a friend of mine's house looking for me because I hadn't reported. And, and um, uh, I showed up like 15 or 20 minutes after she left. He's like, dude, thanks a lot. You know, your fucking PO was just here looking for you. She said, you better go fucking turn yourself in. I was like, uh, I guess they know where I hang out now. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And I was like, fuck. All right. So I was like, can you, you know, he gave me a ride up there. I gave him everything that I had on me, my weapons and my drugs. And I went in and I reported. And she goes, you have 24 hours to have a bed and treatment. And I was like, fuck. And so I called the treatment center I ended up going to. And I was like, I need to get a bed. And the lady that I talked to, she goes, well, you fucking missed your date. You're going to have to wait. Oh, so you already had a date? <laughs> I, I guess I already had a date. I didn't fucking know, right? Like, I was just, whatever. The one well, that they had scheduled for you, probably? I don't, I don't know. Okay, okay. Like, I can't remember. You know, I just I just remember her telling me, like, you're going to have to Was there a lot of drugs and alcohol in your life at yeah. this point? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was totally using That explains it. <laughs> it was fucked up. The memory lapse. Yeah, and she goes, well, you, we'll put you on the list you'll probably be 30 days. And I was like, fucking sweet. You know? So I called my PO and told her what they said. And I, I thought I was going to have like 30 days to get high before I had to go to treatment. <laughs> and I shit you not, this is, you know, I shit you not. Like, um, I went over to another friend of mine's house, but my mom knew this person. And so she had her phone number and, and things like that. And, and I went over there and I was getting high and my mom called her at her house and, she goes, okay, the treatment center called. They said, you can be there tomorrow. And I was like, fuck, really? <laughs> tomorrow? So I rode my bike across town. I went over to my mom and dad's house. I stole some shit from out of his garage and, and you know, some things from the house. I remember pawning a Game Boy and some of my dad's tools and stuff like that. And then I went on an adventure that night and just got as fucked up as I could. Um, and I went into treatment the next day. My mom drove me a hundred miles from, from the town I was in to the town I was going to. And I'm, you know, I think my poor fucking mom, you know, cause I was just lit. Oh, sure. My whole life was fucked. Like, you know, I had five year sentence over my head, uh, you know, about to violate my probation, fucking spun out and drunk. My poor mom, I'm 24 years old. She's driving me over there, listening to my insanity. I'm sure I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. I was just going to say. And, uh, I, I walked into treatment and was like, yeah, I'll just pick this up on my way back out, you know? And, and that's not what ended up happening. You know, a lot of things changed for me while I was in there. And, and, and a big part of it was as I, as I got to know the counselors and the, the other people in there, uh, something that Courtney shares, you know, my story was well received, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, not, not necessarily at first. I mean, the there's a, there's a clip of me talking about showing up to treatment with no underwear and my mom giving right. me money for underwear and me not fucking buying it, spending it on dope, you know, because it, my life was completely unmanageable. That's that was everything for me, you know. I I literally did not spend any money on anything except for drugs, and that was because that's my sometimes had to. Yeah, but well, and 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 as you were talking, what it reminded me of is like. Yes, we got into rehab and, and, you know, we, as, as we got to share our story and got to get to know people, we find, you know, some community and, um, that our story is generally well received, but that takes time. Yeah. Like when, let, I mean, yeah. let's talk about like day one for me, like day one in treatment was just fucking mind blown. Right. Like I'm still, 
I'm still kind of feeling the effects of withdrawal, right? Because I go in for detox first. Right. I mean, and that's the thing is like, you don't just you don't just show up and immediately go into rehab, right? Like my no, I did my really you didn't detox at no, all. No. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, maybe I I don't know. Well, and here's the thing is like that's they're all different. Right? I was gonna say yeah, like different approaches work depending on where you go, but like. You know where I ended up going to to rehab was I I first went to detox, and and they actually I went to detox for three days and they were like I think it was a Friday, and they were like okay you can start rehab on Monday, and I was like I'm not gonna make it like <laughs> I, I I am not gonna make it Friday to Monday without drinking like uh, what what are your other options you know, and uh, and they actually you know that's when they told me that. I could um, do an inpatient resident treatment. Um, and, and here's the thing, like, I want to be very clear about this because not everybody is fortunate enough to go to rehab. Right. Like, I was very, very, very lucky in that I was able to go to rehab. Now, you went to a hospital-associated rehab, right? Correct. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there are different... Yeah, and there, yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's plenty of different rehabs depending on where you are, mm-hmm. and some do accept, you know, people who who have uh, low income or whatever the case may be, and there's programs available. But in this particular instance, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, two weeks down the road, I began to see people who were who had to leave because they had insurance problems or whatever the case was, I began to realize how fortunate my situation yeah. was, you know, just that I was actually able to go and get treatment. And uh, do you and see that now? Or could you see it then? I could see it towards the end, like okay. a, a couple of weeks in, you know, and that's the thing is what I'm trying to get to is like, I had, you know, three days detox, still kind of feeling spacey from the stuff they detox you with and then they sit you down like for me like i joined everybody who was already in like a group therapy welcome cameron exactly i sat down (laughs) and i'm just like holy shit like this uh, this is real yeah i'm in fucking rehab and i i swear to you that must have been my my inner dialogue like the, the entire inner dialogue that I had throughout the course of the day, which was I'm in fucking rehab. Like, Oh my God. Like, how did I get here? How did it yeah. ever get this bad? You know? And, and, uh, and then I shared and of course, like, you know, I'm wanting to give my whole life story immediately. And like, <laughs> this, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm doing that. And this, and justify everything. And, you know, they were pretty quick to sort of just shut me down and and say okay let's talk about like the actual facts and and you know just stick to that information and and uh yeah i remember sharing it with everybody and and uh and in that in actually in that first group session we had somebody in there who was sharing their their first step because One of the things that they did in therapy was this was a 12 step based therapy and they had you, um, address step one, which is, um, I'm an alcoholic and my life has become unmanageable and, uh, well, I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. And in order to do that, the work that they have you do is 
to look at specific instances of your life and see where you tried to manage it and felt right. Right. Um, and just how, um, unmanageable your life is because of the alcohol. So they have you write down all these instances of those moments and then read it to the group. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I introduced myself to the group, the group introduced themselves to me, and then somebody proceeded to read <laughs> their first step. Okay. And it was just like, Oh shit, really? Like this is, this is what we're going to be doing here. Uh-huh. And, and at that time, like I, I, I still had reservations, right? Like I was in there for pills and I was in there for booze and I was quite certain that I was going to be able to still do one of them recreationally. I didn't know which one at the moment, but I was quite certain that only one of them was the culprit Yeah, and that I could hold on to the other. Mainly I was holding on to pain pills because I just had it in my mind that I had legit pain. I didn't know how I was going to get, you know, how I was going to do life without them. Um, and, uh, and anyway, so, I mean, and, and, and that for me was like one of the biggest moments where my mind was just sort of blown right. about like what it was we were going to be doing, what, what I could sort of expect. And I don't really know what I may have been expecting, but it was made very clear to me very, very quickly that this was going to get extensive, yeah. you know, and, um, and luckily because somebody was sharing that shit with me immediately, like. I knew that, and I could see how well received his share was. I knew that, you know, I was, I was at least with people who, who knew how I felt. Right. And you I, could relate with what he was saying. Exactly. Yeah. Shit. yeah. Even yeah, though you maybe weren't ready to like tell your side of right. all that shit, but yeah. But I, I definitely identified with a lot of what he was saying, yeah. but it also frightened the hell out of me to like dive into that with complete strangers. Yeah. And how, how long was your, your treatment, uh, program that was 30 days that was a 30 day and i remember too thinking as i was like looking around like there was so many different types of people you know what i mean like there's younger dudes there was um you know younger latino woman who clearly had some like gang affiliation um and and some older dudes that again like had more of a street lifestyle than i did and and then some some entitled people, you know what I mean? Like just so many different walks of life that were yeah, in there. And mothers. it was like, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is kind of, this is crazy. Like, yeah. how am I ever going to share all this stuff with these types of people? Yeah. How are they going to relate to yeah, this? They're not my type of people. Yeah. But I, I understand all that. You know, my, my treatment program that I went to was a 90 day and, and it, it, it wasn't necessarily a 12 based program. Uh, it was more like a critical thinking and, and thought-based behavioral um, alteration type treatment center. Now, um, you know, what, what they did do is make you do a using history and then a financial history and then a sexual history. And it was kind of broke up into, into all mm. these different, different aspects. And, and I remember like the first little while there, um, I could not stay awake. Like I kept getting in trouble for sitting in group and it was, it was a co-ed house. We lived in a house. The boys uh, lived downstairs. The bedrooms were downstairs in this house and that's where the group room was at. And then the girls stayed upstairs. So this was residential. Yeah. Okay. It was a 90 day residential inpatient. And 
the kitchen was upstairs and the day room was upstairs and, and we would eat and gather upstairs and then we'd go to group downstairs and, and, uh, you know, they made us do all kinds of like weird shit, like make our beds and, you know, there's all these checklists and fucking all these rules that you had to follow. But, but I remember thinking like, this is better than gel. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so, um, I wasn't, I wasn't really hit with, oh my God, I'm in rehab right off the bat. I was, I was more like, I'm so fucking glad I'm not in prison right now. Wow. Yeah. And I'm going to be able to fucking lie to these people like I do everybody else and get away without having to be completely honest. But that is not what happened. These, the ladies that worked in there and I actually, uh, last summer got the opportunity to meet with, uh, my counselor almost 20 right. years later and, and give her a big hug and tell her, you know, thank you. A lot of that stuff stayed with me and we'll get into some of the things that she worked with me on. But you know, the, the big thing that they worked on us with was like, uh, making us understand the responsibility that, that we created the problem in our life, right? Like, um, it wasn't my fault that I'm an addict and an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but I was damn sure my responsibility to clean it up yeah. kind of thing. Yes. You know, um, the way that I use and I drink is detrimental to the community and, and my family and, and myself. And so we would go through and like, I don't, I don't really remember my exact first assignments, but the ones that I remember the most were going through and looking at critical thinking errors, right? Like being entitled, the entitlement thing, the, the, um, uh, criminal behavior part of it. Mm. Um, the lack of responsibility, and and where all these things came from and and how to combat those and then you know they would give us levels and and for whatever reason each level would build a little bit of confidence in in a person you know and and we would lift each other up the other cool thing about the treatment center i was in was you could smoke right yeah i couldn't smoke in jail not indoors right not indoors but like we got they gave us like five a day yeah i remember that being a big deal for me too like fuck yeah you know, you smoke and drink coffee. But uh, another big thing that they did was they started taking us to, to 12-step meetings. Mm. And so even though the treatment center itself was not a 12-step-based 12 12 based treatment center, they they really dialed in the aftercare part. Right. You know, what are you going to do when you leave here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Which is important, which yeah. is critical. Yeah. You know, and... and 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 that's where I really started to understand uh, alcoholism and drug addiction at the level I do now. You know, the Is people it meetings. Yeah, the people okay. that were going there freely and talking about the shit that I kept secret because I recognized everybody else in treatment. Most of them were in there for the same conditions I was. Um, they were in some type of trouble from somewhere within the state, and they were forced to either go there or go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. There was, there was a few people that weren't, um, forced legally, but forced medically. Right. I mean, I don't know too many people. I don't remember anybody in my treatment center that wanted to clean up their family. Like like there was, there was some type of, of negative, uh, consequence to not getting sober. And it wasn't like loss of family or relationships. Yeah. Not really. Like it's it more was, like a threat of yeah imprisonment, imprisonment or, 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 or death. Yeah. Okay. You know, a health issue. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 so uh, I didn't I didn't really mean to get clean. 
I really didn't. Interesting. But, but these fucking ladies, man, they were they were on my shit, and 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 they knew every fucking trick I tried to pull. These are counselors. Yeah. Okay. You know, and and we would do group sessions, and we'd do private sessions. We'd go in and and do things in group, and we would talk about certain things in group, and then we would go in and do individual sessions with therapists, and they they were able to really kind of get a little bit deeper into why I behave the way that I behave. Yeah. Right. And, and ask the right questions and the Christmas thing. Yeah. The, yeah. the monitoring of, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the monitoring of the way that I answer stuff and then navigate around, you know, my, my, um, my firewalls and my safety places. And cause my whole life was a defense, man. Mm -hmm. Right. It wasn't going to be any different just cause I was in treatment. I, I naturally tried to defend everything that I did because like we were talking before the show, you know, I was a victim. Yeah. Like all this stuff happened to me. Right, right, right. All these things happened to me, you know. Alcoholism happened to me. You know, the breakup happened to me. The the crimes that I committed happened to me. You know, all those things were things that happened to me. And they were able to really navigate through my thinking in that stuff and help me identify and be able to admit my part in a lot of those things. And a lot of that stuff stayed with me. You know, I, I did... I did the three months, the three, the 90 days there. And then my counselor, you know, you know, bless her heart. Like both of them, Lynette and Marjean, both said, you know, you're, I don't think you're ready to go. Mm. And I ended up staying another 30 days. So in a 90 day treatment program, I ended up staying 120 days. So, and it, wow. it worked. Like I, I stayed clean for three years after that. And you know, working on the sexual stuff, uh, the violence, violence was a big part of my history, the identity, all, the, you know, they worked, they worked on all that stuff, you know? Well, let me ask you, so when did you abandon the notion that you were going to pick back up after you left? Like, at what point did you say, okay, maybe, maybe, you know, like maybe I can actually just do this. Um, when, when I finally felt safe enough, and, and, and I kind of remember it, right? Because one of, one of the things that I've shared on the podcast so many times was this religion that I was given at birth mm -hmm. and how often I would try to depend on a God that wasn't mine. And it wasn't any different then. you know, the, the higher power concept is, you know, the recovery movement is saturated with the higher power concept. It's not any different than any other treatment center. Like uh, most treatment centers have it. Most 12 step groups have it right. Mo like almost anybody that's trying to get sober or clean has come around to the, to the higher power concept of something bigger than ourselves helping us out. Well, I was still trying to hold on to that higher power, you know, and, it, and the God I was given at birth, <clears throat> I was a great one for just beating the fuck out of myself. Oh yeah. You know, Me huge, too. like, mm -hmm. uh, there, there, like I was a self mutilator. You know, I was the guy that would be punching himself in the face, you know, running through walls, uh, wrecking cars, like, you know, cutting myself. Like I wasn't a cutter, but like it was fun to cut and, and bleed like, like all that kind of stuff. I didn't, uh, you know, so I, like I was, I was a self mutilator and, and I remember I was sitting in group and Marjean was listening to me talk and she was like, Ooh, she goes, fuck, Willie. And I hope I never forget it. She goes, you know, 
I have heard so many people be fucking hard on themselves <laughs> and beat themselves up, but you are fucking far above par. Like you're probably one of the hardest persons on themselves that I've ever seen. And she goes, what, what do you think your higher power, how do you think your higher power would treat you in these situations? Like, what do you think your higher power thinks about you? And I'd right. never thought of that. Yeah. Right? I never thought about anybody thinking of me any other way than I thought of myself. Right. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I thought for sure everyone thought of me the way that I thought of me. And if I could think of me worse than you could think of me and I could hurt me harder than you could hurt me, then you couldn't hurt me. I could no longer be hurt. And with her being able to like come through and talk to me about that stuff and kind of open me up to that, I started feeling safe in the world around me. I started thinking, okay, well maybe, maybe everybody's not out to hurt me. Right. Which was a new concept for mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm. coming from where I came from. Yeah, it, it was never true. R- r- well, <laughs> right, yeah, and 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 I get that, dude. I totally identify with that, and I I think that uh, that was one of the biggest things for me too. Is just always, always sort of falling into this trap of, um, of thinking that you know I was just so unfortunate, mm-hmm. like all these things just kept happening to me, and and you know, and I didn't deserve them, and I. I don't know why and I was just that guy that always kept having bad things happen yeah. you know and uh and really like just not taking any accountability for anything yeah and that was maybe one of the biggest things that I gained from from rehab was understanding that I'm not special and that right. you know like I I'm not entitled to anything and that if I want something I've got to work at it that includes being sober. Yeah. That includes a new job. That includes a new career. Like, I I had just fallen into this this thought I this thought process of things are going to happen for me, and I'm just going to sit here and wait for them to happen. You know. <laughs> yeah. And when they didn't, I was completely sour and yeah. pissed and 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 uh, and just felt like life didn't work out for me. Mm-hmm. You know. And, uh, and that's sort of what led me to, I'm not going to say it's what led me to, uh, to using, but what I will say is that thought process escalated my mm-hmm. using, um, yeah. to a place where, um, you know, it led to me putting a gun to my head, you know, yeah. which we've talked about before, which was, you know, kind of where I was at before I went through that rehab. Um, but but once I was able to sort of abandon that victim mentality, for me, that's when sort of the lights kicked on. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm looking at everything all wrong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and because this, this, these thought patterns and these defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms and everything that we have established in our brain patterns and um, everything leading up to that point, it wasn't something that I could easily turn around um for me like I didn't stay sober after rehab in fact I relapsed in rehab right um and they were nice enough to let me stay and and I was pretty optimistic at that point you know I thought for sure I would have learned from that and and uh and then when I got out you know like I was still going to meetings and and but I, I just couldn't get over the, the, the pain pill thing. I right. just couldn't, I couldn't fathom the idea that I was no longer going to have this as an option for my quote unquote back pain. And don't get me wrong. Like I have legitimate back pain. Like I have, 
um, legitimate back issues. Um, but <laughs> they're not, they're not quite like, like a hundred milligrams of Oxycontin a day type. Right. They're issue. not. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't think any, at any point in time was I ever taking pain medication the way that I was supposed to, right. you know? Um, and, um, and anyway, so like I had to go through a process of falling back into my own way of thinking mm -hmm. and, and bringing that victim mentality back into my life and turning again to those substances and seeing how clearly, clearly they, they did not work yeah. and, uh, and really like escalating things to a new level of shame and guilt and, uh, and hitting a new bottom yeah. before I was truly, truly ready to surrender the way that I needed to, to, uh, to abandon all my old ideals. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's the place I had to get to before I went back to rehab. And you went to rehab um, a second time. A second time. And this time I did things differently. I was not a resident. Um, I did the, the, the IOP. Um, and so I would go to work during the day and then I would go to treatment at night. I intensive outpatient. Correct. Right? IOP. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think about that. Thank you. Um, and, uh, which was actually good for me because what had happened the first time is I did 30 days where I, I didn't work and I pretty much lived at the treatment center except for the last two weeks. They let me go home in mm -hmm. the morning at night and, uh, and my living situation was garbage at the time. Anyways, um, I, uh, I wasn't working. So like the shock of being out of rehab going back to work, figuring out a new living situation and all of that all at once was, was a little much, you know, but having this IOP where now I was going to work and also making time for recovery was so beneficial for me because I began to see how I could balance those two right, things right. and how like, um, I could still go to work and still interact with people and still have time for my recovery. Right. And so for me, that was sort of a game changer. Plus I had this new found, um, surrender, surrender. Yeah. This understanding. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and this new willingness to mm -hmm. really just do whatever the fuck you were going to tell me to do. Because yeah. every idea, every notion I had was completely false. So having that and then being able to go back while working was, was absolutely a game changer for me. And then, and then, you know, I was able to put however many days together. And I remember even in that rehab, like I'm, a, I, I like to have fun, right? Sure. Like I like to play around. We are not a glum lot. Uh, we are not a glum lot. I like to joke. I like to, um, I'm sarcastic a lot of times. Really? But I, yeah, <laughs> I remember <laughs> It's like three weeks into treatment and, um, and there was just a lot of fucking joking around and a lot of like horseplay and a lot of stuff that was happening like that in treatment. And I was so fucking sick of it. I was like, dude, I'm here to save my life. Uh -huh. And you know, like I'm not here to fuck around. And, and I remember telling the counselor, I was like, because we had these one-on-one -on -one sessions as well, you know? Yeah. And I remember telling him, I was like, I, I like to have fun, but you know, I'm not here to have fun. Like I'm here to save my life. 
and I don't feel like we're we're taking this like I don't feel like we're getting anything done because we're 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 having too much fun, you know, and uh, and he heard that and he tried to like corral it and he tried to he was able to you know sort of curve that and bring things into a more focused um, more focused way of of doing things and it made a difference, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, and. I wouldn't trade my experience the first or the second for anything, right? Yeah. Like it needed to happen the way that it did. Yeah. For sure. Like I needed to feel that new level of guilt and shame yeah. that I felt having an understanding of exactly what I was doing to myself and why when I went back out. Yeah. And so for me it all sort of plays a role into what would eventually be, you know, consistent sober time. Right. And so after that, let me ask you, with your rehab experience, the one that you're referring to now, were you able to stay sober? Uh, I, yes, I, I stayed sober for quite a while. That, um, so what ended up happening with me is, you know, I did all that time and some of the stuff that you're talking about, I learned in there as well. And the thing is, 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 is when we're loaded versus when we're clean, right? There is a, there is this level of disconnect from our conscience, right? And so we learn, like you were saying, you know, you, you get sober for a while and then reuse, or you stop stealing for a while and you re-steal, or you stop cheating for a while and you re-cheat that, that kind of behavior stuff, which was all part of my story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. the drugs, the stealing, the lying, all those things. Well, while I'm in treatment, I'm sober and I continue to try to lie but it doesn't feel right anymore. Right, right, right. continue to try to steal and it doesn't feel right anymore. I continue to try to cheat and it doesn't feel right anymore. And all these things start getting exposed as, as they should. Right. And the thing that you were talking about as you were sharing that, you know, I was, I was upstairs in the kitchen and and I started drinking milk and we weren't supposed to drink milk. And, um, that's weird. (laughs) Well, well, it was for breakfast, right? And they, you know, rehab's got rules, like fucking whatever. Oh, okay. You know what okay. I mean? Like yeah. the rules are the rules, man. And and I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm gonna drink some fucking milk, and I'm drinking milk, and I I didn't feel good about it. You know? Did you do it just because it was a rule? I don't know. Probably. I get that about you. Yeah. Like fuck, fuck your milk. That's a yeah. Fucking throw your milk in the garbage. But I, I, I drank it and, and it felt so horrible to me that I exposed it the next day, you know, and, and, and they explained to me that that's growth. Right. And so I did, I, I went through all the phases mm. and became the, the lead of the house. Right. So you go through all these phases and you have on certain jobs and you make the, the fucking, uh, food list and then you're the cook and then, you know, you're the, this and the you get these jobs and, and move up to the head of the house. And then w- once you're the head of the house, you're the guy that welcomes the new people in and shows them around and introduces them to everybody. And, and that felt really good to me, you know, it felt really good to sit in the front seat of the van and be the first one in the meetings and kind of keep an eye on stuff and, and be the, w- w- the example, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. I'd never been that. I'd never been any of those things. And so eventually I did graduate um, with honors and a couple things that happened was that just blew my mind was like my dad my dad told me how proud he was of me and and it, it caught it, it was it was kind of a double-edged sword because I was like fucking you're oh I bet you're super <laughs> proud of your fucking 24 year old son that's graduating rehab mm-hmm. you know and it was embarrassing but at the same time I was like 
bet. You know, I, this was hard for me. Yeah. This was really hard for yeah. me and I don't want to use today. And so, um, I graduated and, and I did like what you were saying. I ended up moving to, uh, Gillette, Wyoming and, um, doing my aftercare up there, going to meetings up there. And there's, and a really strange things happened because Gillette, Wyoming and the, my hometown are all the way on opposite ends of the state. And so I went home for Christmas or something. I don't remember. And, uh, I stopped at the treatment center for a little visit that that treatment center was so valuable to me yeah yeah yeah. like like they it got me clean it changed my perspective on life and and a lot of it was a lot more powerful than i think it needed to be um but you know learning who you are is a process anyway but i went i went back and i was like hey what's up you guys and i come down in the the room and come down to the to the to the meeting room and, and tell us what's been going on tell us about your recovery and i went down and it was the first time that i had told that I'd spoke on the, on the level that I do now, as yeah. far as telling my story, my experience, strength and hope to a group of people. And I got so fucking high off of that dude. Like <laughs> I got so fucking jazzed off of it. Like it was in, it was so insane. And, and some dreams had, had been coming true in my life. Like I bought a bass guitar and I had my own place and, you know, I was staying sober and, and, uh, Marjean goes, well, if you ever want a job here, huh. let me know. Interesting. And I was like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, I'm fucking, nah. And I couldn't get it out of my fucking head. I could not get it out of my head. You know, I'd learned so much. Well, I don't know. I probably didn't learn dick, like really, but I was able to stay clean, right? Like, like I, enough had been planted in me to resonate on and build off of that I couldn't get it out of my head, man. Mm-hmm. And I ended up actually going to work at that treatment center. And I, and I worked at that treatment center for a year maybe a little bit longer as a resident advisor and my, my hours were three to midnight and I was the guy that got to take the clients to treatment or to, to meetings and give them their night meds and make sure they had smokes and eat oh, dinner wow. with them and, and, and all those things. But also I got to go behind closed doors with the counselors after group and listen to him talk shit. It's uh, <laughs> you know? so, and so you see and, kind of the, the and not ne- yeah, not necessarily talk shit, but, but like, you know, they go in there and they'd be like, the motherfucker is full of shit. Yeah. He's lying out of his teeth and it'd be like, wow. You know, like, do you guys do this with me? I'm like, fuck. Yeah. 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 You were the worst. You <laughs> see how the milk is made kind of thing. Yeah. But treatment was treatment was such a confidence building, inspirational thing for me. And one of the most profound things that happened to me, and I hold on to this all the time, is there was a guy that came into treatment. He never drank until he was like 40 years old. Right? He didn't start drinking until he was way old enough past drinking age. And he was a Mexican guy. He came from Mexico. He got a citizenship, and he was a sheep herder. And, or no, he was a, he was a railroad worker. And... um he worked on the railroad until he retired, but he didn't start drinking until he was 40, right? He started drinking and his alcoholism took off, mm-hmm. completely fucking took off. And for the next 24 years, he drank. And when he came in, he was like probably weighed 105 pounds, just really sucked up. His eyes were yellow. His liver was shutting down. And uh, he was one of the people that came in due to a possible life-threatening yeah. issue, yeah. right? And I remember sitting down in group and I was sitting straight across from him. I was looking at him and uh, we'll call him Max. 
and I was uh, I was looking at Max, and I was looking at the 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 desperation in his eyes, and I was looking at the pain, and I was probably two and a half months into treatment at that time, you know. So I'd been there for a minute, and I was I was just looking at the despair in him, and the shame, and and everything that comes along with untreated alcoholism when yeah. you can't quit. And he was sixty four years old, and I was sitting straight across from him. I was twenty four years old. And there was a 40-year difference, and we are sitting in the same fucking place for the same fucking problem. Right. And it really resonated with me that this is never going to change. I will always have this fucking disease, and I will never be able to use successfully. Um, I stayed sober for three years after, uh, after I got out of treatment. And once I relapsed, it took me years. It took me like six or seven years to get back. And by the, the time I got back this time, everything that I had learned in treatment that I can remember, the important stuff stayed with me that entire time. But this time I was ready to do the necessary work t- to maintain long-term sobriety. Mm-hmm. All the stuff that everybody had tried to tell me would work before I was finally ready for kind of like what you were talking about. Yeah. Well, and I think that when we're in treatment, there's so much about that that I actually never knew, but... <laughs> which is weird. It's like, it's weird that yeah. there's, that I'm still finding out new things about you. But I think, uh, when we're in treatment, one of the things we talked about before, and I just want to briefly touch on this because I think it's worth talking about is one of the things that they will tell you in your group. And, and mind you, like when, when you get in there, like in my experience anyways, like you begin connecting with these people like on a level that you have never the connected other with. patients yeah or the, the other patients oh, okay. yeah. yeah like and 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 let me just turn this around and, and bring it inward right like i begin connecting with these people <laughs> and, well and, i can relate yeah but. yeah in, in a way that i i never expected and um and and all of a sudden we all have hope together yeah right? um and we're we're just we're rooting for each other we're um we're connecting in this way and almost to where it feels like, you know, we're going to be friends forever. Yeah. And then one of the things that they hit you with in treatment, um, oftentimes is that, you know, there's 3% of people that sober up the first time actually stay sober, you know, and that, uh, and that relapse is, is super, super common. And, um, and it's, it's kind of a weird reality of that. They hit you with that because you're like, wow, some of us aren't going to make it, you know? Yeah. And you don't want to believe that you're like, right. wait a minute, we're all here. We're all super determined. Like why wouldn't any of us make it, you yeah. know? And that's the truth, you know, like what, what are your thoughts on that? Because we, we were kind of getting into it and Jordan was kind of sharing his opinion on it. And he, he was saying that he didn't like that. He, like mm-hmm. for him, he felt like that really tripped him up when they gave him that information. And, and he thinks that, uh, maybe that, uh, Jordan, you, you, you tell it here. Like you were saying that, that you make it, you, you feel like it makes, uh, makes things seem hopeless. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think it depends on when you hear that and where your mental state is. Like for me, I heard that if I remember right, I, I feel like it was probably like the, this, this first or second week that I was in treatment. They're like, okay, take a look around you. Um, there's probably only one of you that are going to make it you know right and there's like maybe seven or eight of us there but that was the reality and the reality is is i don't think any of us made it the first go around um but what what i didn't like about it is when you're coming into a rehab state 
you know, you're already, like you had mentioned earlier, Willie, you're already a victim. You, you've you put yourself on the sideline and proceeded to complain about how your game is being played. Um, so when you come into rehab and somebody tells you, hey, dude, the odds are stacked against you and you're already a victim, it's so much easier to, to play devil's advocate and say, well, forget it, man. Like, I, you're right. The odds are stacked against me and nothing has ever worked for me in my life, which is why I'm in rehab. So I'm just going to go yeah. right back to what I was doing. Yeah. So I think it does take a level of accountability and a few wins to be able to say, "Holy shit, I I am the three percent." Like, because this is it's a it's a change. It's you know you got to be able to to say I am versus you know be afraid of it. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Well, just, I get that. Like, there's a lot of shit I didn't like hearing. When I was well, and that's and that's just the thing is like they hit you with a lot of reality, a lot of reality, a lot of stuff that you don't want to hear. And I think that generally, if somebody's going to use that as a reason to drink, they're going to find something eventually, anyways, sure. right? Like, if, sure. if I'm going to use this, oh, the odds are sta- stacked against me, so I might as well just go have a drink. Then that person's going to, oh, you know, the, my my job back wouldn't give me my job mm-hmm. back, so I'll I'll drink over that. You know, they'll find a reason, like because we don't we don't need. There's always reasons. Like, yeah. We don't need any additional reasons, but um, it's the truth. Right, like that is the reality of rehab. Yeah, like, some people aren't going to make it. A, a lot, yeah. you know, a lot of people aren't aren't fortunate enough. So, um, again, like it for me, what it does is it it sums up the fact that I think that we are miracles. Yeah, we're the lucky ones. We are the lucky ones. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I was so fortunate enough to go to rehab to to have that experience. Yeah. Um, rehab I, kept me, got me sober and, and, you know, a 12 step group, um, keeps me sober. Yeah. I haven't really thought about how lucky I am to have gotten to do that. You know, sometimes like I'm, I go back and I think how lucky I am to fucking do anything at all to be here at all, but to, to be here and to have all the things that I prayed for. You know, because there was a time that I prayed to get sober, mm-hmm. regardless of my belief, my my solid belief in a power greater than myself. I sit here sober today, and and it's such a such an amazing process because uh, the three percent that make it, I dare say, <clears throat> make it through a willingness to continue to try, right? And yeah, very I, well said. I've I've said so many times I don't know you know why me right and my wife I'll never forget man Avery Avery told me you know as after after someone fairly close to me died you know um he he went to our home group for a long time he ended up actually relapsing and getting uh suicide death by cops like the cops killed him and uh I thought fuck you know that guy tried so fucking hard you know, he was, he was at meetings. He was always, we actually went up and did a third step together. And, and I thought, what, you know, I was asking him, I was like, why, why do I get it? And she said, cause you do fucking work, mm-hmm. you know? And what that means is, is I go to meetings, I reach out, I have a service position, I get transparent. I talk about my cravings. I talk about my failures. I, I do everything that you I work the steps. I do everything that they told me to do this time, mm-hmm. everything that they told me to do. And when I'm not feeling right, I talk about it. You know, when I when I'm afraid of that I'm in danger, I talk about it. Like all this stuff is well received, you know. So, yeah, we're the lucky ones, along with 
We are the lucky ones. And uh, as you were talking about the blessings that, that you've gotten from the, the program, it just reminded me of, uh, of Courtney's story. Yeah. She, she goes over those. You know, mm-hmm. She talks about all the, the blessings that she's, that she's gotten and where she's at today. And, and, uh, and listening to her journey just from start to finish <laughs> is just so cool to yeah. hear where she's landed. Yeah. Um, and I'm so happy that she was, that she shared her story with us and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's do it with that. Uh, without further ado, this is Courtney's war story. This week's war story is brought to you by brainwash coffee. Brainwash Coffee is damn good coffee with a damn good cause. 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community, which is why Brainwash Coffee is the perfect partner for us here at the other side of hell. With blends like Hyo Powder and Ego Inch Your Amigo, Brainwash Coffee has your back no matter what you're putting. Right now, you can get $5 off your coffee order when you use promo code OTHERSIDE at brainwashcoffeeco.com. Clean your bean with Brainwashed. And without further ado, here is this week's first um, so my name's Courtney. I'm a recovering alcoholic addict. Uh, my sober date is October 10th, 2016. Um, born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I'm still here, freezing my ass off. <laughs> um, um, so my story starts with, um, I'll start with my mom. I'll start with my childhood. So my mom had me when she was really young. Um, and my dad really, really struggles still to this day with um, addiction, whether it be alcohol, sex, drugs, gambling. Um, my mom is a quiet, like loving, caring, compassionate person. And my dad is like her polar opposite. Um, so my father has a lot of trauma that he never dealt with. And my dad is Cree. So I'm Indigenous and I belong to the Métis Nation of Alberta. And unfortunately, within the Indigenous community, there's a lot of addiction and poverty and intergenerational trauma. Um, And so I kind of grew up in an environment where I thought everybody's family got together and drank the way we did. Um, My childhood, I loved being with my family and my cousins all the time. We loved playing guitar and getting together for dinners, but every weekend was booze all the time. It was always booze. Um, I remember being as young as probably like four or five, walking around these family parties where the kids would like run wild and the parents would be drinking. And I'd be walking around like sipping the piss out of the beer bottles. And so my drinking started really early, like not to the point where I was getting out of control, but I was introduced to it really early. Um, I grew up at the track. So my dad had harness racing horses and I was placing bets with him uh, when I was like eight. So I was gambling on horses, uh, hockey, football. Um, That was kind of like our uh, bond, right? Like that was what I did with my dad. So when it comes to my family, like I said, there's a lot of addiction and a lot of trauma. Uh, We didn't have a lot of money growing up. Like we always struggled, but it was because of the fact that like 
we, we got this big settlement when my mom was pregnant with me. We got a lot of money from a car accident and my dad used it all to buy horses and we were living in low income housing. Um, so, you know, uh, throughout my childhood, we would like struggle for, you know, food or um, we had to pawn our car a few times. Like, I didn't even know you could do that, but back in the day you could. Um, and I had to lie a lot to my mom. So I grew up hiding a lot of my dad's secrets. Um, he would take me to this really seedy bar uh, in Edmonton called the Dover. And it's in a really bad area where like you drive by and you lock the doors, you don't get out, you don't look at anybody, you don't want to stop at the red light. Um, and he had this old Cordoba, like an old 76 Cordoba with like a T-bar sunroof and it didn't lock. <laughs> So I was like eight or nine, but I was terrified because like I couldn't go into the bar, right? Like I can't go in and make bets. So I had to stay in the car and I would hide um, under the footboard. And like there were people drinking and drugging in the parking lot a lot of the time. And I was terrified that one of them were going to come and like steal me or something bad would happen. And I'd be terrified. And my mom never knew any of this was going on because my dad would tell her that he would take me swimming or we would go watch a movie or whatever. And I'd have to lie to her. Um, and I, I think a little part of her knew, but my dad was so unhealthy uh, that he was extremely abusive. So it was like walking on eggshells a lot of my childhood. It was you never knew if you were going to get like Jekyll or Hyde. Um, and so I grew up with a lot of fear, um, of my father and I just, I struggled really like a lot in my younger years because I never had that love with him. I always had the sports betting, sports betting was our thing. Um, but we didn't have like a deeper connection. There was something off the drinking really took away from our relationship. And so throughout the years, um, the abuse with my dad got really bad. So some of my earliest memories are like of my dad abusing my mom. Um, like there were times where he'd come home from the bar and my mom would shove the chair underneath the door so he couldn't get in. We'd have to call the police. It was kind of a regular thing. I remember one particular night where like he had got physical with her and I was so scared that he was gonna hurt her that I finally like mustered up enough strength to go up to him and while this is happening it was terrifying and I said like please stop like you're gonna hurt her please stop and he looked at her and then looked at me and he took it out on my mom like look what you did you know so from that moment on things got a lot worse with the violence between my parents my dad was constantly cheating on my mom and um they stayed together for a really long time. So the the family home was kind of a, it was a hard place to be. Uh, I have a full brother who's three years younger than me. So the two of us kind of just stayed together and and tried to stay away from, from him um, because we didn't want to say or do anything to like upset him. Uh, fast forward a little bit to, I'd say my teenage years. So I started drinking really heavily when I was 12. My parents got divorced when I was 12. Um, reason being, we were having another one of our family parties and my dad had um, gone into my bedroom and fell asleep, passed out, woke up, didn't know I was there. 
and started talking to a woman on the phone. And it was like, hey, baby, all this stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, like what's going on? And I had just had enough at that point of all the lying and all the cheating and all the stealing and all the hate. And so I went into the living room, everybody's drunk drinking, all my aunts and uncles are there, my mom's there. And this is back when the phones had the cord on the wall. Um, and I reached up and I, I pushed the speaker button and everyone heard everything. Um, and so from that point on, my relationship with my dad was fractured. Um, there was a lot of fallout from that, huge. Uh, unfortunately, I knew the woman that he was with because I had met her before um, my mom even knew that they were together, basically. Like I had to keep the secret again that they were together. Um, and so my outlet for my anger, my sadness, my depression was soccer. I played competitive soccer from the time I was like eight all the way up until my mid twenties, um, with the same group of girls. It was my therapy really. Um, I got my aggression out. That was how I dealt with things. But when my parents got divorced, my soccer, I still loved playing. I was still really good, but I started putting vodka in my water bottles, right? Like I started drinking on the field. I started fighting on the field. Um, it got so brutal that Edmonton District Soccer had um, suspended me for a whole year um, because of a fight that I got into. It was a physical altercation where like the refs had to come in and pull people off. And I know like in hockey, that's not a big deal, but for like underage women's soccer, um, like that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> so we had to have a hearing and the whole thing. Um, and yeah, I couldn't play. So it, I didn't have an outlet anymore for, for my anger. And um, I wasn't allowed on the bench. I wasn't allowed in the dressing room. I had to sit up in the stands, like, like had no control over it. And it just killed me. Um, and so that's when my drinking kind of started to get out of control, but it was always with family. Like I wasn't partying with friends. I was partying with my family, like my cousins and stuff. So I always saw it as it being okay because it was like a barometer of, well, all of us are on the same level. So if, you know, if this was bad, someone would say something. Um, it was just horrible. I, I just, I can't remember how this happened, but my little brother started talking about things that had happened with my dad. And I was the only person that he confided in. And so he had told me about a bunch of um, like abusive situations and my brother took himself away from the family at that point. Um, but nobody else would listen, believe him or me. Um, and that's kind of when we both shelled up. We didn't want to talk about anything. Um, we didn't want to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable just for someone to tell us that we're making things up. And my dad was so unhealthy that he really he wouldn't remember the bullshit that he told you right like it would be like a piece of truth here and there um and he would constantly accuse people of what he was guilty of himself right um so a lot of projecting and and things like that um now 
when I was living with my dad, let's say I'm 16, 17 now, like very unhealthy. My parents are divorced. So my dad's living with his new wife. My mom's living with my, my stepdad and I'm living in my dad's basement. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but I was being monitored. So there were cameras in the bathroom. There were cameras in the living room. My phone was tapped. Um, and this was so crazy that I, because of the gaslighting and the manipulation, like I thought I was making it up in my head. I would say things to friends on the phone because it was a corded phone on the wall. It wasn't a cell phone. Um, and I would say things and he would bring it up later. And I'd be like, how the fuck do you know that? Right? Like, and it just kind of threw me for a loop, but I didn't really think too much into it. And years later, these images would resurface. Um, and it just devastated me because that's my fucking, that's my dad. Um, and so even after that, somehow we never talked about it. I brought it up one time and he, it was throwing things and breaking things and total, um, what someone would do when you catch them in a lie, red handed. Right. Um, and I was so scared. I could, I didn't do anything about it. I shelled up and numbed out with booze and men. Like I started jumping from relationship to relationship because I was looking for that external validation, that love, that understanding and compassion that I was craving. Like I, I just felt like I couldn't give it to myself. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, that's my relationship with my dad kind of in a nutshell. But one thing that, um, that was, I thought good about the relationship with my stepdad and my stepmom is she kind of kept him under control. And when I say that, I mean, like, she would take the attention off of me and put it on her in a way to kind of like protect me, I feel like, and I see that now. I didn't see it back then, but I see it now. Um, I came from a family where like, we had to work really hard for what we had. We didn't really ever have extra money, but we were happy. And my stepmom was very well off. She was very wealthy. Um, she owned a restaurant in the city, property all over. And so all of a sudden I went from like not really ever having new clothes for school and, you know, not caring about that stuff, but um, she would take me to fancy restaurants and she was taking me shopping and um, we would go on trips together, but booze was always involved. And so I got really close with her um, but the same pattern started to repeat again, where my dad was being extremely secretive and shady and gambling all her money away, cheating on her all the time. Um, it was absolutely brutal. So I, again, became kind of like the scapegoat where I was keeping secrets and I wasn't allowed to say certain things to certain people. Um, it was really hard. Now, that's my dad's side. On my mom's side at this time, like I'm talking like 17-ish, I was dealing with a lot of sexual trauma from a different family member. So from the time I was 14 until I was about 25 or 26, um, I experienced a lot of sexual trauma that really fucked me up. Um, and so by then I was drinking every day. I had a good job and that's why I thought I didn't have a problem is because I was still making money and paying my bills. Um, 
but the drinking was ex excessive all the time. Something bad would always happen, right? Like I would get hurt or someone would get a DUI and I just kept going. Um, all of my relationships ended up mirroring the abuse that I saw between my mom and my dad. And that was huge for me to recognize because I never made the connection. I would always say, I'm never going to be like this. Like as I'm drinking, I'm never going to be an alcoholic. Right. Um, and so, yeah, like it was, it was just wild for me to be able to see it from like the other side of the fence, but um, rolling up to let's say early twenties, I'm uh, I'm in a relationship with someone who I think I'm going to marry um, like young love. Right. And he's the, the first guy to ever kind of like stand up to my dad. Right. And so my dad hated him, hated him, like started a physical fight with him. Um, and it just started this, this horrible, like tug of war, like I control her. No, I control her. And I'm sitting there in the middle, like, well, fuck me. Like, do I have a choice in this? Like not realizing that I did. Um, but my dad all of a sudden started integrating himself into hanging out with me and my friends. And all of a sudden my dad, you know, was saying, well, just bring your friends to the restaurant and we'll drink. You know, we've, it, it was always open bar, always all the food you can eat, just come over and that's it. You don't have to pay for anything. And looking back, like, that's why I had so many friends. That's, you know, they weren't, I always felt this like feeling of being disposable. It was something I was so I felt unworthy, unsafe, unloved. And so when my stepmom came in with this, this money, this life, um, and my friends were kind of reaping the benefits of it, I didn't look at it as them being my friends for what I had. I thought that we were friends because we were like friends. Um, and that wasn't the case. So as my drinking got worse, nobody said anything to me. Nobody tried to help me because we were all on the same level and eventually um when the booze stopped working I went to cocaine because I was suicidal my depression was spinning out of control um I couldn't function I couldn't function I didn't want to shower I didn't want to brush my teeth I didn't want to get up in the morning and so when I was partying with my friends Cocaine was great because you drink and you feel like you're going to throw up or black out and you just do a little bit of blow and you level it off and you like play this dangerous game of like trying to balance that out. Um, it was horrible. And so, so yeah, the cocaine really, it took a hold of me really fast. And I did blow every weekend for like three years and I would work Monday to Friday and every Monday I would say fuck this is disgusting drug I'm never doing it again Tuesday would roll around and I'd be like well fuck and then the you know stress this that excuses and I deserve it how does it go from I'm never doing this again to I deserve it um I deserve to poison my body right um it was it was just such a sick vicious cycle and I couldn't see it um, because it was giving me all those warm, fuzzy feelings that I wanted. It was giving me the heart to heart fucking conversations with the friends that I had at the time. And, um, all of us had this trauma bond of sexual abuse. So we would all get drunk and we would all get wasted and talk about all of the things that happened to us. Um, and I thought that was therapy. It was fucking making it so much worse. Uh, 
So kind of going up to the point where it got a little more out of control. Uh, we were driving to a hostel to go party for a weekend and we're driving down the highway and this guy pulls up beside us and he was like waving at us and pointing at us. And we didn't know what the fuck was going on. Our fucking car was on fire and we didn't like, we pulled over the fire truck showed up and like, Oh my God, it was such a disaster. Nobody breathalyzed us, nothing. Someone else came and got us and we went on our merry way. Like what's wrong with you where you're driving in a car where like your car starts on fire and it's like, oh, it's okay. Like, we'll just leave that there and we're going to keep going and party. Like that was so messed up, but it happened. Um, and then the next weekend I decide that I'm going to go party at this bar. And this is when I kind of hit my rock bottom because at that point, like everything was out of control. I could still, I still had my job, but I felt like I, I wasn't even in control of my own mind anymore. Um, I started to go a little crazy. Like I, I was driving to work and I wanted to drive my car into a pole. I'd be driving and, you know, like, well, this would be so much easier if I just swerve off the road and fucking deal with it now. Um, and so that's when I knew I, I really needed to go see my doctor. Um, but my, my, my addiction was so deep seated. I would try all the time to quit all the time. I would make it 30 days and then I would reward myself with more drinking. I would make it three months and then I would reward myself with an all-inclusive trip to Cuba so I could get freaking wasted. Like, you know what I mean? It was so messed up. At 23 years old, I was diagnosed with fatty liver disease and it was from drinking. Like I had a biopsy done and everything. And I remember telling my friends I had done a cleanse, like an herbal cleanse. And I told them that it wasn't from drinking. It was from the fucking dandelion root. That's what it had to be because who sits down and eats five pounds of dandelion root. It's not the drinking. So my denial was like, I didn't have a problem period. Um, it was just, just wild to think about that. But, um, yeah, sorry for getting off topic there, but Anyways, rock bottom. I go to a bar. I'm with my friend. I lose my friend. I order a drink. And then all of a sudden, I remember pops of in and out of consciousness, like blacking out, but coming to really dizzy, didn't know what was happening. And I woke up in an alley behind the bar, sandwiched between the garbage can and the wall. And I tried to get up. And I just, fuck, like, I couldn't, I felt like someone rolled my ass. Like I got beat the fuck up and I got up and walked a couple steps and fell right into the middle of the alley. And I just laid there. I didn't care if someone came to drive over me, they wouldn't have seen me. It was pitch fucking black back there. And luckily two people walking down the alley found me Two good people. Thank fuck. Who were sober at two in the morning in like the worst area of Edmonton um got me safe so my higher power has saved my life more times than I can fucking count um so many dangerous situations and and after that it really scared me because I was like wow like I'm really gonna fucking die like I'm gonna die um so I went to see my doctor and she got me set up with a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with complex PTSD had no idea what that was uh, a major depressive disorder because I was suicidal. I didn't want to live anymore. And at that point I was working for the university of Alberta, had a really good job. And I decided that I was going to go to rehab. Uh, 
And so that like that fucking saved my life because never at any point in time in my life did I think I would ever need that kind of help. And especially someone like me who has a job. <laughs> like, yeah, I have a job. Okay. Like it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I went to a six week intensive inpatient therapy, um, all women's rehab facility in Calgary, Alberta, met some beautiful people and like, man, rehab is no fucking joke. You like, you go in there to deal with the deep, dark demons that you've been sitting with for your whole fucking life. And you have to do it sober and you can't run and you can't have eight cups of coffee a day, just one. Like there's fucking rules like you wouldn't believe and chores and all this shit. And I wasn't having it. I was having such a hard fucking time. I remember every day waking up, wanting to leave so fucking bad. And then the three week point came and I, I didn't want to leave anymore. I was feeling good about myself. I was recognizing my, my self-limiting beliefs and my negative self-talk and was gaining all this confidence. And, you know, people were believing me for the first time in my life, listening to my story and saying, oh my God, girl, like, how did you do that? Instead of that never fucking happened, you know? Um, and so rehab saved my life. I made some amazing connections in there with women who, for my sober sisters, um, I left rehab thinking like, I can fucking do anything. Like, I thought that was it. I'm fixed. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and so I came home and real life started happening. And I got pregnant three months after rehab. So I was newly sober and still trying to figure out who the fuck I was. Um, I had my son Giovanni. I bought a house. I graduated from university. I did all these things where I thought nothing like that would ever happen to someone like me. Um, and it, it's just so beautiful. I was always told I would never be a good mother. My dad always said that to me. It was horrible that I had this like deep seated, you're going to be a bad mom. So you can't have a baby. Like you're going to be a bad mom. So you can't have a baby. Um, and so my dad hasn't met my son. Um, we don't have a relationship at all. And it does break my heart, but like those boundaries are what saves my fucking life. Like I don't talk to anybody that I used to hang out with. I've lost lifelong friends. I've lost all of my family pretty much on my dad's side. Um, and I'm rebuilding from scratch. So all the people that I have in my life now are people who build me up and help me and legitimately care about me, not people who would leave me in an alley to like OD and die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, like I, I accomplished a lot right out of, right out of the gate and I was so, so happy. Um, but you still have to deal with death and you still have to deal with losing people and you still have to deal with, with hardship. Right. Um, and so these last two years I know have been like, especially difficult for so many people being isolated with COVID and all that. Um, but for me, this year really saved my life. I found myself slipping back into a depressive state, um, wanting to use, wanting to drink. One of my best friends was murdered. Um, and that was, she was my sober sister from rehab. So she was murdered two blocks away from where I used to play as a kid. And uh, it fucked me up. It messed me up because she has a little boy too. Um, and so dealing with all of that 
was really hard sober, but rolling through those feelings and dealing with them, I know they're not going to eat me alive and kill me. Um, yeah, so I lost my grandmother as well this year. My son was diagnosed with severe autism. Um, it's It's been very freaking difficult. I left an abusive relationship. Um, but for the first time ever in my whole life, like I feel like I'm free and I feel like I'm going to be okay. And that is like the hugest. It's just such a, I'm so grateful for sobriety. I'm so grateful for the sober community because of the, the abusive relationship. I was isolated for a long time and I, I didn't know any other sober people than the people I went to rehab with. I wasn't doing meetings. I was a busy ass mom and, you know, made excuses. I don't have time for myself. I wasn't even showering. It was brutal. Um, but now I know I need to meditate every day. I know I need to go to meetings every week. I know I need to keep in contact with my people and not isolate because I don't want to die. Um, I know now that like the things I used to pray for five years ago, I have all that. So the things that I pray for now, five years from now, in like a healthy mind state, I'm fucking excited. You know what I mean? Like I'm in school for um, addictions counseling. Never thought I could ever do something like that. I'll be done in six months. Like it's fucking incredible. Um, and yeah, like all of the pain and all of the trauma and all of that, like it still hurts, but it doesn't consume me. I don't sit there and ruminate in these things because I know that that's who I was, not who I am. Um, and I'm still learning. I'm still very like, I'm five years into sobriety, but I feel like I'm just beginning to live again, if that makes sense, just because of everything that's been happening. Um, and so, yeah, like, I'm just extremely grateful for being able to do this and getting connected with the sober community because it saved my life this year. It really did. Yeah. I think that's all I got. Yeah. We're super yeah. grateful too. Very, very grateful, very compelling and powerful story. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing it. What, uh, what parts of that did you identify with? Willie? <laughs> Put you on the spot. She, uh, she said something that the, and I, and I talked to her about this when we're on zoom together, but she she said, and I quote, I felt disposable. Mm. Right. And, mm. and what a, what a, what an illustrative word of how we feel. Yeah. Like disposable, like I could be replaced. The world would be fine without me. I don't measure up. I don't matter. You know, that, that feeling that, and, and you know, she would, right? Like after all the shit that her family had, you know, drug her through and especially her dad, that Jacqueline Hyde yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. And, and for me, you know, having children and, and being sober, like I cannot imagine this fucking doing that shit to my kids. Oh, like, man. But I can imagine being the child in that situation where, you know, I, I, I would absolutely love to go to the track with my dad and, you know, drink beer and all that stuff. But I cannot imagine doing that stuff with my kids. Right. Kind of thing, you mm -hmm. know, like, like the, the tables have turned and, and like she's talking about breaking those chains and being a different generation is, is huge. And she's had to, she's had to set some hard boundaries yeah. in order to do that. And I think that that's sort of the reality sometimes of, of uh, a life in recovery is that we we definitely need to guard our recovery with our lives because it is 
life and death. Yeah. And that means making some hard choices like that. Yeah. Um, and I commend her for that. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible that she's able to do that the way that she has today. Um, one of the things that I really identified with in her story was that she always had a job because mm-hmm. I always had a job and it all, and, and, and like what it did for her, like what I hear her saying is that she was never, she never had a problem because she always had a right. job. Like There's... she, she wasn't an alcoholic because she always had a job. Alcoholics don't have jobs. Yeah. Alcoholics lose their job. Alcoholics sleep under a bridge. Alcoholics drink from a paper sack. You know, these are all the the stigmas that we have that that really just allow us to justify continuing to drink the way that we do. Like, I'm not an alcoholic. Like, the, yeah, I, I still have a job. Yeah. Like, in my case, dude, I was on thin ice. You know, like, and the only reason why I didn't have, I I still had a job is because literally I had a government job, and it's impossible to get fired from yeah. a job like that. You know. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I totally identified with that part of her story and, mm-hmm. and, and there was just so much that just really was, was really cool to hear the contrast from where she came from yeah and what, what her life is and, like and, today and where she could be, yeah you know, like, like had, had not the series of events happened in the order that they happened, you know, for, for whatever reason, bro, like, like we are the lucky ones. Like mm-hmm. she's one of the lucky ones that. I guess is that 3%. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like, like yeah. if, if that's a hundred percent accurate, but you know, she, she went into treatment and got transparent and it was well received, which yeah. is, I think is such a huge thing for, for so many of us, you know, when we're hurt and we've talked about that on the show, especially with, with abuse, uh, victims and, mm-hmm. and trauma mm-hmm. when, when, we start talking about that stuff and it's well received. A lot of times that's the first time it's ever well received. And it's the first time that, um, we ever feel safe enough to continue to talk about it. Yeah, like to we'll, be we'll, honest, like we'll that. dabble our toe in, in this stuff like she did with the, with her friends that were getting high on coke. Like, you know, I remember, I remember a lot of really intense fucking loaded conversations with people oh, where sure. it just felt like, you know, we're, we're connecting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. spiritual and, mm-hmm and this is this is the the answer to my problems and then the drugs would wear off and usually i'd feel embarrassed or try to push away the conversation mm. that i had or being open to people and then i'd hate myself in even more for for being dumb enough to talk about that and you know just just having that stuff and being able to deal with it you know she talked about you know still having to deal with that stuff yeah. but still you know, it feels freer now than I ever have. Yeah. Even, even though I still have life shit going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate that she talked about that because I think that, you know, like we, there's no illusions here, right? Like we still have to deal with difficult shit in sobriety. And I like that she talked about some of the things that she's had to deal with, Yeah, you know, since getting sober, she's walked away from relationships like, um, you know, like yeah. relationships with family members and relationships with the, you know, boyfriends, um, she's had to deal with death. She had the one friend who was murdered. On, and, yeah, which and, is powerful. We had a friend yeah. that, that had a, a loved one murdered. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, and you knew her, like yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She. Um, so that's. I mean, these are all things that that happen in recovery that we we learn how to deal with in in a healthy way. And and one of the biggest things that I took away from the conversation that we've had about that friend who who whose uh, loved one was murdered is that he could have made that all about him. Yeah. 
and 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 she's in the same boat where she could use that to make it all about her right right um and the me before rehab would have used that as as an excuse to to drink you know um but today you know life isn't like that and 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 we owe it all to um the the people that were in our lives that that you know pushed us to maybe get the help that we need and uh and for whatever reason you know the the recovery that stuck yeah and uh, and our willingness like like jackson would say the angels in people's clothing right right yeah able to break through those barriers when we need it yeah so i'm just so i'm so blessed to call myself sober today i'm so honored to know the people that i do that that uh that um you know have been put in my path to help me along this journey and and I'm honored that Courtney is one of them. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing that story today. Um, and with that, let's let's uh, let's get out of here. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, this has been good. Little, little, little memory lane. Yeah, you know, I actually went to a meeting yesterday at the treatment center. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Where I got sober, so I, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, to, I get to go up there and speak every every month, one one day a month. I'd love at, that. That same treatment center love that, that you went to. Um, cool. Enough cool. about us. Yeah. Let's make it about Ryland. You guys take this moment upon yourselves to remember how beautiful you are. <laughs> Ryland, thank you, man. Um, really appreciate it. Jordan, you're awesome. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, thanks for all you guys do. And if you're listening or watching the show, remember that you are worth the work. We'll see you on the other side. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.